Hello, I'm Douglas Murray, and welcome to Uncancelled History. Today, I'm joined by Professor Henry Clark to discuss the Enlightenment. Professor Clark has been a visiting professor in the Political Economy Project at Dartmouth College since 2014. Along with holding numerous academic posts, he's the author of La Roquefoucauld and the Language of Unmasking in 17th Century France, He's edited Commerce, Culture and Liberty, Readings on Capitalism before Adam Smith, and is the translator of Montesquieu's My Thoughts. Professor Henry Clark on the Enlightenment. Professor Clark, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Um, in recent years... Almost every figure of the Enlightenment seems to have come in for a special form of attack, uh, criticism, uh, lambasting and more. Some of them have been accused of racism. Some have been accused of being involved in slave trade or of slavery. Some are uh, guilty of living in the past. Um, but before we get on to that, let's start at the very basics. Um, what was the Enlightenment? Well, there's, as you can imagine, a number of different ways of answering that question. And one would be that the Enlightenment was a polemical term devised by the people who produced it. They call themselves in France les Lumières, the Enlightened Ones, uh, as they uh, both felt themselves to be the victims of a kind of cancel culture in their own time, the cancel culture of absolute monarchies or of the church, the Roman Catholic Church, but also the Protestant Church. And they saw themselves very loosely, I might add, as part of a similar project of bringing to bear on the problems of the day whatever reason and evidence and science and enlightenment they, uh, they could muster. I think that... Uh, Another way of thinking about what the Enlightenment was is, uh, in a sense, it was a, it was a rediscovery of the individual. The individual had already been discovered in Western culture centuries before by Christianity, uh, especially in, uh, in the early Middle Ages and in the High Middle Ages, there were a multiple variety of different ways in which the individual was validated, the individual conscience, the individual will, was validated in various institutions of European culture. And the Enlightenment basically added to and elaborated upon that. And I mention this because the, the figures that we normally associate with the Enlightenment, some of them were quite adamant that that what they were doing was a radical rupture from what had existed in the past, but in many ways it was a continuation of what had existed in the past, so that the, the ways of thinking about the individual in the 18th century, in the Enlightenment, uh, were uh, similar to, but also slightly different from those that had existed uh, in the past. And I would say that one major way in which they were different is that uh, most of the people we associate with the Enlightenment, 
the people that you were referring to when you said that there are uh, many figures today who are being canceled um, believed that the achievement of science in the 17th and early 18th century was something that could apply not just to the natural world, and it was absolutely obvious that it had applied uh, very directly and uh, 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 robustly to the natural world, but that it ought to also be applied to the uh, to the human world as well, the moral mm. world, the social world, well, the, the political world, the mm. political world, ultimately as well. And then we get then we get to not just uh, the Enlightenment, but what scholars often call the Enlightenments, because we we call this uh, by one word. But of course, there was a French Enlightenment. There's a um, well, the, my my favourite one, the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, there, there are different enlightenments going on at the same time, but it's not coincidence, is it? I mean, the, the, there's this ferment of learning, of knowledge, of a desire to uh, get out of a state of, um, of superstition uh, and much more. What was it that made all of this happen at the same time, roughly? That, of course, is a big question, too. And one way of thinking about it would simply be this. Uh, it took maybe three generations to get from Galileo to Newton. Mm. And what Newton did was he took the, the great streams of new knowledge that were developing in two fields that had been more or less kept separate, the fields of physics on the one hand and astronomy on the other hand, and he brought them together into one grand overarching synthesis, which was fairly, and this was in the late 17th century, 1680s, and this was immediately recognized as just an extraordinary uh, achievement. And so a generation or two further on after Newton, European thinkers had had a chance to reflect upon what possible application this methodology, this approach, and these achievements might have for thinking about the moral world, the social world, the economic world. And what were the main, what were the main conclusions they were coming to? There are a number of them. And here's where some of your regional or national enlightenments come into play, because there are different emphases in different parts of, uh, of the West. There's more of an emphasis in France, for example, on a mathematical and even geometric uh, approach to uh, the application of science to human affairs, partly because the influence of Descartes was still very important in, uh, in France, even after Newton's uh, synthesis was drafted in England and in Scotland. I, the, the, the textbooks say, and the textbooks are mostly right, that there is more of an emphasis upon a sort of uh, empirical uh, approach, but the empirical approach uh, means something slightly different for human affairs from what it means for natural or, sci or, or uh, the, the affairs of the physical world. Uh, they mean that the authority of individual experience, uh, including the experiences that we have in our ordinary daily lives, suddenly becomes much more important. 
One of my favorite books on David Hume, for example, uh, is entitled Philosopher of Common Life, which is a good example of how you might take the authority of empirical experience derived from the sciences, Galileo, Galileo through Newton, and apply them to understanding moral life and social life. There are limits, however, to this approach, so that if we, uh, if we look at economics, for example, obviously we think, uh, when we think of economics during the Enlightenment, we think of Adam Smith, the wealth of nations, that's the work that mostly really established economics as an independent discipline. I mentioned at the start that every single figure of the Enlightenment seems to have come in for particular attack in recent years, usually for the, the same reasons. Uh, one of the most prominent has been uh, David Hume. Uh, his, own, uh, his own university, uh, Edinburgh University, recently took his name off a, a building, which I think he would have been rather insulted to have seen was named after him anyway. <laughs> it's one of the ugliest buildings in Edinburgh, a building in the 1960s. But anyway, David Hume Tower had David Hume's name taken off uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, his statue on the Royal Mile has, has been assaulted. Um, I think that it's important to, to sort of try to lay out the groundwork of, before we get on to the specific accusation, um, what was David Hume about? What, what was it that he did? Why, why are there statues to him? Why, why were there ugly buildings named after him? <laughs> well, first of all, of course, uh, just to acknowledge, there is the notorious footnote in Hume's writing. We'll get to that. Yes, indeed. But they, basically, David Hume was arguably the wisest and most talented philosopher in the English language, not only in the 18th century, but perhaps ever. But he was uh, someone who abandoned philosophy, really, uh, in in his late 20s, when his major work, A Treatise of Human Nature, fell stillborn from the press, according to his own account, largely because people did not know what to make of it, and most 18th century readers did not read it in a very deep way. It really took until the late 19th and 20th century before people could begin to grasp what he had done there. But after that failure, that publishing failure, because Hume did want to be a successful man of letters. I mean, he wanted to have a successful career. He did not want to be a, an academic philosopher writing only for other academic philosophers. So he pivoted, he shifted gears, and he changed his whole approach to writing. And he deliberately cultivated a form of writing that, as he put it, served as a kind of conduit between the world of learning, which he had clearly mastered, and the world of conversation. Mm. That is to say, the world of all of these sort of uh, uh, civil society institutions, uh, the academies, the salons. He was a big hit in the social circuit in Paris when he was there. That was the, his target he audience. He wanted to take ideas out into the broader world. He absolutely did. And what was well. it? What was the specific idea or set of ideas that Hume was trying to bring out to wider public knowledge? From from a from a moral and social and economic point of view, uh, his basic idea was that society could, in fact, be made up of uh, virtuous people. That in fact, the seeds of empathy and sympathy and humanity 
uh, which he regarded as modern virtues. He didn't think they existed in the Christian Middle Ages, and he didn't even think that they existed as much in the ancient world, which he otherwise greatly admired. But these sort of softer virtues of humanity, as they were sometimes called, they were, to my mind, absolutely central to mm. uh, Hume's entire project. Uh, he brought them into the world partly by uh, writing his History of England, which was mm. perhaps the most uh, successful work of history in the entire 18th century. Voltaire would be a, 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 a possible rival. But Hume believed that, uh, that people had within them the capacity to, an intuitive capacity really, to, uh, to, to share in the, uh, in the sufferings as well as in the joys of, uh, of, of other people. And that this, in fact, was much more likely to serve as a viable glue for mm -hmm. human society than any of the alternatives that had been tried and were being tried. The mm -hmm. authority, you mentioned the authority of the church, the authority of the state, the law, and so forth. And the prevalence of superstition. He was certainly a... Uh, he was certainly an enemy of superstition. There's no question about that. What do we mean by that, by the way? I mean, it, again, it, it's, it's important to try to work out the world in which these people were living. It's so different from our world. When we talk about superstition in, in the age of Hume, what were the superstitions that he was railing against? Anything having to do with revealed religion. Uh, and, and, and now, I should say, his views were not necessarily absolutely mainstream on the question of religion. The religious beliefs or commitments of the Enlightenment figures as a whole are somewhat mysterious. They're, uh, they're fluid. They're, it's not always easy to pin them down. Hume is an exception. Hume was well known to be an atheist. He was a principled atheist. He was denied any position in academe on that account. He, he, think of this for a second. He was he, unable to teach at the University of Edinburgh because of his religious beliefs. Uh, because he didn't hold. He would not sign any document that uh, involved a commitment to the reigning orthodoxies of the day. And in that regard, and I've stated it in exactly that way for a reason, and that is because um, uh, it, it, he might serve as a model for, for those of us living in the 21st century. He was undeterred by that very much, however. He didn't uh, go off and sulk about it very much. He ended up having a life that was probably happier than the one that he would have had had he... Had he been stuck in academia in the had, University had of Edinburgh. Had he been hired as a professor at the University of Edinburgh, I think he would have found the restraints to be intolerable. So he, he, he um, the, the, not just the separation of, of church and state, should we say, but the, uh, um, a non-belief in the truth claims of the church was not just for, for Hume, but of course for other major philo uh, philosophers of the Enlightenment, a, a very core tenet. So we start to see, do we not, the sort of not just the, the, the sense of the moral individual emerging and the, the invention of the individual, you might say, but also the separation of, of the church and the state, the recognition that, that laws didn't have to come from a clerical class. They didn't have to be laid down by bishops and, 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 and clerics and others. The foundations of what we assume, particularly in the modern West, and particularly perhaps in modern America, the foundations of what we assume to be the normal order of things 
are really laid down in this period. Yes, they are. But let me pick up on your church and state point uh, for a second, because the Enlightenment wrestled with the question of how you rearrange the relationship between church and state. And I'll just give you an example growing out of your comment. Uh, Hume thought a lot about this subject, and so did Adam Smith, the two key figures of the Scottish Enlightenment that you mentioned a moment ago. But they had very, very different views of how the relationship should be between church and state. So from Hume's point of view, you're not going to get rid of religion. The uh, ordinary people are going to continue to, uh, to believe, and uh, religion is going to be with us, apparently, alas, from his point of view. So the best thing to do, given those constraints, given those realities, is to, uh, is to support and maintain and sustain an established church. What you do then is you, you buy the indolence of the preachers. And what he meant by that was all the great religious upheavals, the religious wars, the civil wars of the 16th century and then of the Puritan Revolution in the 17th century, all of the horrors, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And the, the centuries of just... The centuries of religious bigotry and mutual hatred. Uh, Hume's solution was... You establish a church, and then you make the clergy so comfortable in their positions and so closely aligned with the establishment uh, of the state that they will no longer uh, 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 perform the function that they had been doing in centuries past of rousing up and riling up and serving Mm -hmm. as demagogues to the basest passions of the people. That was his solution. And uh, it's worth remembering, as I say, that, that this was after centuries in which the, religion, the religious denominations of Europe had demonstrated they couldn't get on with each other. It started at least with Luther in 1517, and if you want to go back to Jan Hus, yes. uh, at the Lollards, uh, John Wyc- Wycliffe, of yes. course, in your country, uh, in the late 14th century, it was indeed centuries. So this was, this was just a vital, this point, that, that some solution had to be found to this problem. And David Hume was one of the people who applied himself to this solution. Exactly. Adam Smith's solution to the same problem was completely different. Well, let's, we'll come on to Adam Smith in a second. Uh, let's quickly, though, wrap up with David Hume something we can't avoid, something you've mentioned, uh, which is the infamous footnote. All attacks on David Hume in recent years centre on one footnote in one essay. Tell us about it. It, It's the notorious uh, racism uh, footnote. And basically what he says uh, is it's in the uh, uh, context uh, of an essay on national character, is that, um, is that, uh, yeah, his own view is that the is that black people are simply inferior to the whites. That's what he calls us, the whites. Uh, they have never accomplished anything in the past uh, worth remembering. They are not likely to to do so. Uh, 
period paragraph, end, mm. of, end mm. of story. He doesn't really say much more about it than that. It's a very short footnote. It's a very short footnote, and it's, it's, an, odd, it's an odd footnote as well, isn't it? Because it seems in so many ways to run against what he says everywhere else. Well, it certainly flies in the face of his empiricism. Yes. Since there were few, if any, blacks that he was familiar with in Scotland. Uh, He had had not traveled to Brazil or to the Caribbean, which is Mm. where most uh, slaves from the West African coast uh, ended up, or to North America and the North American colonies either. Uh, So it's not at all clear uh, where he might have gotten his uh, ideas from. And this is quite, this is common at the time, isn't it? I mean, I mean, uh, Rousseau has huge numbers of views about uh, um, native peoples in other lands, most of them rather uh, flattering, but, but uh, never went further than Switzerland. I, I mean, uh, how could somebody have a view like Hume expresses in the Notorious Footnote about something they didn't know about? On that general point, what I would say is that they all read the travel literature. So, right. And so ever since Columbus, there had been a profusion of travel accounts by Westerners who had gone to, uh, to, to the Caribbean islands after mm. Columbus uh, or to, um, uh, to, to the North American colonies or to wherever it was that was now part of the, uh, part of the sphere of interest of Europeans. The reason why you're absolutely right is that people had opinions about people that they knew nothing about directly. They were very often relying upon the accounts of other travelers. Hmm. In many cases, especially for China, they were relying upon Jesuit accounts. Hmm. Obviously, these accounts are of varying quality, varying reliability. Hmm. Um, But I've not seen anything indicating that Hume's view of blacks was based on uh, the thing about that footnote is it just appears dropped out of the sky. Yes. Uh, it, there's no context for it. Yeah. It's not a footnote that really elaborates in any meaningful way mm. the flow of the text. Um, uh, he never, anywhere that I'm aware of, anywhere else in his writings, returns to the whole question no. of what we would call race. Uh, the idea of race is a 19th century idea, of course, and it hadn't really developed in anything like that form uh, by his own time. But he did, however, continue to keep the footnote in later editions yes. of that. And there is some talk, I don't know how accurate it is, that there were friends of his who were remonstrating with him mm. to remove it, but he never did. Mm. And so it's a very curious uh, performance, and what, what its purpose might be is uh, is, is mm. impossible. Of to, course, yeah. it's it's not. I, I guess what it comes down to, it's not clear whom he is trying to refute or whom he is trying to answer. He mm. clearly somebody had said the opposite. That he someone had had said to him at some point, no, black people are equal to white people, and and he so. But, but who that is or what the context is is completely uh, mysterious. Of course, one of the reasons why the, the Enlightenment philosophers seem to have become a sort of a fulcrum of, of dispute in recent years is because they are living in an age in which all of the things we now see as the, you know, the worst vices, uh, let's say, of Western history are going on. The, enlighten, the Enlightenment philosophers are working in an era where the slave trade is underway, 
They're working in an era in which uh, colonialism is, is going on. A number of Enlightenment thinkers have been attacked because they've invested, for instance, in one or other of these, these trades. Others, it's because, as with Hume, of, 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 a, of a sentiment in, one, in their writing, which by modern standards is undoubtedly held to be wrong. But, but it's, it's not satisfactory, is it, to sort of lump them all in like this, because the number of views and, and different attitudes towards these things going on in their time differed hugely between the thinkers themselves. I mean, Adam Smith, for instance, has views on the slave trade, which by modern standards are, um, as it were, tick all the right boxes. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily go quite that far, but I take your point. And certainly there's a wide range of, of opinion in the 18th century. But I would make a, a more general point, and that is that the treatment of Hume and of some of the other uh, 18th century figures uh, uh, strikes me as being, to a certain extent anyway, an example of what we might call boomerang moralism, by which I mean we are using moral standards to condemn 18th century figures who themselves were part of the history that produced those moral standards themselves. Mm. So that... We're using their own tools against them. The slave trade and overseas slave trade had been around for centuries. I would say uh, not only in Europe, but uh, going back to the Islamic Middle Ages and before. Not only that, but uh, plantation slavery went back centuries. Racially based plantation slavery was not invented by 18th century Europeans. You find it in the ninth, ninth, ninth century, not the 19th, but the 9th century Islamic world. And so um, the reason why we condemn the slave trade and its uh, particularly virulent uh, racist forms today is because of arguments and debates and strife and struggle that was engaged in by black people and white people alike, including uh, leading Enlightenment figures uh, in the course of the second half of the 18th century and into mm. the 19th century. And we're using those standards uh, against mm. the very people who produced those standards in the first place. To put it another way, there's no reason that I know of to believe that in the absence of the 18th century European Enlightenment, that slavery and the slave trade would not have continued indefinitely for centuries on into the future. Uh, there was great reluctance in the non-Western part of the world to bring an end to the slave trade when the British Navy got busy in the 19th century and attempted to stamp it out root and branch. Uh, so. So that's why I call it a kind of uh, boomerang moralism. Certainly, um, uh, again, as on the case of religion, there's a difference between Adam Smith and David mm. Hume on the subject of slavery. Smith's views are very clear about that. He writes about it in every one of his, of his works. And Smith's views on the slave trade were, were what? Well, I, I want to get to that, but I do want to do one little small last piece of justice to Hume before we do so, if I could. Of course. Hume made, a, even though Hume was a racist, he made a robust 
argument against slavery and the slave trade based precisely on his moral theory of humanity, compassion, and, uh, and mm. empathy uh, in, uh, in his essays. And I'm quite certain that Smith was very familiar with that. And so anything that Smith did to further the argument against slavery itself and the slave trade probably owes something to the very man who mm. is now being canceled for his racism. Now, Adam Smith, one of the other crucial figures of the Scottish Enlightenment, is, is generally held today to be um, the, the figure most responsible for the foundations of what, what we now call capitalism. Um, that, that's a correct assumption, isn't it? I mean, Smith gives us capitalism. Is that too simplistic a way of looking at it? I get a little nervous about the word capitalism. Um, what I would prefer to say is that Smith waged war against mercantilism, uh, which was his word for the system of state-directed overseas commerce-centered policy, economic policy, that dominated in the generations after Columbus when the great scramble to open up oh. the Atlantic and, as, and the East as well uh, occurred, the, the language that Smith used to describe the system that he preferred was not capitalism. He never used that word, but the simple and obvious system of natural liberty. What he would think about capitalism today is an altogether more complicated question, mm. and I'll illustrate it just in this one poll that came out very shortly after the 2008 financial meltdown, when one of the polling um, agencies found that 53% of Americans prefer capitalism to socialism, and 77% of Americans prefer a free market economy yes. to a government-managed economy which means that 24% or so, at a minimum actually, of our fellow citizens believe that there is a difference between a free market economy yes. and capitalism. And so um, Smith would have been, I think, somewhat more comfortable with the designation a free market economy mm -hmm. than he would with the term capitalism precisely because Presumably, one of the reasons why our fellow citizens uh, are so hostile to capitalism by comparison with a free market economy is because they are thinking of corporations that have a cozy, cronyistic yes. relate, which was exactly the target of his entire economic system. One of the things, again, just to lay some of the groundwork and get some of the context to this, the context in which Smith and others were working at the time of the Enlightenment was a situation in which governments I mean, they didn't know how to make money, did they? Um, I mean, there were various ways. We see this at the, the court of the, of the French kings. Uh, you, could, you could tax the people more. You could invade and steal someone else's stuff. Um, that was about it, was it not? I mean, there were no other ways to become rich as a country. Nobody could solve the problem of... I mean, the, the flatlining of European economies essentially for centuries, other than with these two methods. It just it seemed an ins insoluble problem. 
Well, yes. And what I would add to that is, and this was the particular target of Smith's ire, is that the governments of contemporary Europe, um, which he called the mercantile system, and we call it mercantilism, believed that in uh, what we might call a kind of bullionism. That is to say, the idea of government policy should be to uh, maximize local, uh, maximize your exports, minimize your imports, and thereby accumulate as much bullion, gold and silver bullion, as you possibly can. And that that bullion is the sinews of war, and therefore the uh, seedbed of state power. And so uh, this is how you make a country uh, rich. Uh, and, uh, and 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 you know the, the term mercantilism has been uh, revised and and revisited in recent years, but in broad outline. The one aspect of it that I think Smith got right was that implicit in this bullionist position is the idea of the entire trading system as a whole, the global trading system, as being a zero-sum game. So that if the Portuguese are importing gold and silver, then that's gold and silver that the Spanish or the French or the English or the Dutch are not importing. Mm. And so the global economy is a fixed pie of values. And, what, and Smith was not totally original at this, but he was the one, like Galileo, really, who brought together this ferment mm. of new ideas and systematized it. And his great breakthrough was to argue that when free individuals are engaging in labor, which was a sacred right for Smith, uh, of their own choosing uh, to provide goods and services uh, that someone had provided the capital for, uh, no matter how small or how minor or how modest they may be, even a humble peddler, which is another reason why I'm nervous about this term capitalism. We don't normally think of peddlers as being part of the capitalist system, but Smith, Smith validated the activities even of a humble peddler as long as they are acting freely and using their own skills, their own resources, their own assets, that, that, the, that the pie itself can expand. And in fact, everyone can be made better off. Which is what happened in the period since. Yeah, to say the very least. I mean, it changed the world. Yeah, in the 250 years or so since Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, First of all, global population, which was a fundamental measure of human well-being in the 18th century. It's not so much for us today mm. as we're worried about carrying capacity. Uh, but for almost until the day before yesterday, global population was a measure of human flourishing. Global population has increased tenfold mm. from 1770 to 2020. And... Unlike other periods of human history where population rose, the quality of life, the, the, the opportunity for human dignity mm. that those uh, millions upon millions of people living today have 
are simply off the charts by comparison with what Smith thought was already a rich country. He thought England was a rich country yeah. in the 18th century, but it, he would have been simply blown away, I think, by what's been achieved since then. Now, when talking about the Enlightenment, I mean, there's such a wealth of thinkers to, to cover. Um, we, we barely touched on the French Enlightenment thinkers, but uh, they're, they're undergoing, of course, a similar reevaluation at the moment. And again, as with Hume, there's this issue of moral complexity. You have a figure like Voltaire, who, um, who is accused of complicity with uh, investing in, in, in companies that had to do with slavery and colonialism. On the other hand, uh, it gives us some of the great condemnations of slavery in a work like uh, Candide. Um, so, uh, it, you know, we're not, we're not going to be able to cover all of the figures of the Enlightenment, but there is one other that I'd like to uh, come in with, which is John Locke. John Locke is seen as a, the sort of father of liberalism um, in, in the classical sense, perhaps. Uh, uh, just, it, now, we're in a very strange position with Locke as well because John Locke seems now to be under assault. His reputation is under assault, not just from the political left, but from the political right. Uh, tell us a little about that, but first of all, perhaps, what was John Locke's contribution? What's the thing that we would most revere him for? Certainly his letters on toleration were very, very important, fundamental, and they read very well today too. Mm. Um, he wasn't by any means the first person to think that religious toleration might be a good thing. But, uh, but he wrote certainly uh, among, the, uh, among the most trenchant and illuminating defenses of religion tole uh, religious, uh, religious toleration uh, that we have. Um, secondly, in his own time, his kind of blank slate empiricism was hugely influential. So he believed that humans were not born with innate ideas that, uh, that they then carried around with them through life. They were a product of their experience. And if, you know, we were talking before about the importance of experience to the enterprise of modern science, certainly Locke was a fundamental figure in that uh, in that regard, and he was very, very popular throughout the 18th century as someone who really spelled out the psychological basis, we might say, for why it is that being open to experience, being open to experiment, uh, 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 looking at your own eyes, wanting to do experiments, uh, that these were the way to ad advance your own knowledge, and in fact that they were the only way really to uh, accumulate knowledge. And then, of course, thirdly is the political, um, the 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 political domain, and there, uh, the there's a number of ways of of thinking about him. Certainly, he was one of the figures that the uh, American founders uh, and even the French revolutionaries, for that mm. matter, had read very closely. Uh, his concept of the purpose of government uh, was rooted in the private experiences of private people. And that is the, uh, the, the desire that each uh, individual person has uh, for, uh, for property, property in the widest possible sense. And, and Locke defined property very broadly. Property was not simply, it was not just land. It was not just movable goods. You had a property 
in your own person, you had a property in your own ideas. No one, the one reason for religious toleration is because no one has a right to interfere with the property that you have in your own religious convictions. Mm -hmm. To say nothing of the fact that it's, history has shown it's absolutely impractical, absolutely unfeasible to, uh, to, to think that you can control what people think or what people uh, say. Mm -hmm. So, so, so unlike the ancient republics, which define the purpose of government as uh, in a, with a very robustly public sort of idea that the purpose of government is the public good, and the public good ultimately in practice gets to be defined by the government. I mean, there's mm. just not much, not, much, uh, not, not much way around that. Uh, Locke's view was that the purpose of government fundamentally is to ensure that uh, as many ordinary people as possible could enjoy the fruits of their own property in this very broadly defined sense uh, to the maximum extent possible. So I think that is, uh, is, is one of the ways that we would mm. say that we venerate a lot today, since that is, in fact, the way we actually live our lives, most of us. Um, so the, the founding fathers, as you say, relied hugely on Locke uh, and what he discovered. But it, again, it's worth reiterating, not, none of these were, were perfect people, I mean, if, if any such thing exists. And, and Locke, in, in Letters on Toleration, uh, it gives us a very good example of that, doesn't he? I mean, we, we, we have benefited enormously from his concept of tolerance, including a religious tolerance. But of course, in his own day, I mean, he thought there were limits to that, and rather some rather curious limits, weren't there? A religious tolerance shouldn't be extended to... It, 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 of course, it's obvious it shouldn't be extended to Catholics. Yes, of course. I mean, of Makes course, perfect sense. Yes, you're not yeah. going to, you're not going to uh, tolerate Roman Catholics. <laughs> or, uh, or, or atheists. Or atheists. Either. Yes. yes. Uh, Locke, Locke includes atheists in the people who... To whom tolerance should not be extended. Yes, indeed. And, you know, it's easy to poke holes sure. in, in, in works of this kind. The reason why they endure is because the arguments that he made on behalf of toleration for the groups that he didn't want to include can relatively easily be extended to the groups that he didn't want to include. And that, of mm. course, is how an intellectual tradition, a cultural tradition, uh, grows and develops. I mention this because it's it's there there has been in recent years among other things among pro enlightenment thinkers let's say not the critics who've emerged in recent years been pro enlightenment thinkers a sort of concept almost of the big bang of the enlightenment that uh, that it that it it goes off like a, like a natural event and we're still living in its wake and I, I mention this with Locke really because it's a reminder of the fact that yes that does happen to an extent but it's a the enlightenment is an an ongoing project. It's 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 a con, it's a not a project that just starts with a big bang and and it, it, it something happens that's a major development in human understanding of ourselves. But it it, it rolls out over a long period of time. Is built upon. Is developed. It's 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 not a uh, it's not like a a religious text that lands. It's a very important point. And coming back to our uh, point a moment ago about uh, human flourishing today by comparison with 1770, all of that improvement 
was the result not just of ideas, or perhaps not primarily of ideas, but of, uh, of improvements in productive power of, uh, of the economy. I mean, uh, people learned how to utilize their own resources, their own assets in ways that made it possible for an individual labor, laborer to produce vastly more than individual laborers had uh, in the age of sort of the organic uh, mm. the organic, organically based eco economies, as, uh, as some historians have called them, which are dependent upon the weather, dependent upon the soil, dependent upon the vagaries of what uh, happens to grow, uh, animals and plants and so forth. Um, the, you know, the, so, so the great, but, but the Enlightenment was not unimportant in accounting for that revolution, mm. either we often call it the Industrial Revolution, we normally think of it as a 19th century phenomenon, but it too was a long, slow process, and it was taking place in the time that the people we've been discussing, Hume and Adam Smith, were alive. As we think back now of uh, um, the assaults of recent years on figures of the Enlightenment, uh, on some of the specific people we've talked about today. Um, do you share my view that the, that the backlash against the Enlightenment appears to be because of the time in which the Enlightenment thinkers were living? Just the, the happenstance of them living at a time when slavery was ongoing, colonialism was ongoing, and uh, everyone was going to be enmeshed in, to some extent in this. Do you think that that is the reason why they've they've come under assault, or is there something else? I think there's something else, and the something else is that the Enlightenment has always uh, been suspected uh, in in many circles, many intellectual circles uh, as well. Um, uh, there are people who, for instance, have. Uh, traced the horrors of 20th century totalitarianism, fascism, and communism alike, actually, to Enlightenment schemes of uh, utopian social engineering. This is a criticism that often comes from the political right, as we should say. It's very often from the political right, but it comes from the political left as well. Mm. There are a couple of more ways of thinking about this. The Enlightenment people are our people. So in a way, when we attack them, we're engaging in a family squabble. We don't spend an, an enormous amount of time today attacking uh, Martin Luther for his views on the Jews, mm. uh, actually, even though his, some of his writings on the Jews were appalling, in fact. Yeah. Or his thoughts on peasants. Or his thoughts on peasants either, as a, a mm. murdering, uh, a murdering, a thieving ro a band of robbers, I believe, so, is one of the titles. That's one of the, uh, the less pleasant things he says about peasants. But so, so, what, so you're saying that we're focusing on the Enlightenment uh, figures because they remain so central to us. Exactly. We recognize ourselves when we look at someone like Smith, Voltaire, mm. Diderot, or Hume. These seem like modern men. Hume is, was not only the greatest philosopher in the English language, he was one of the best human beings ever, I think. He is certainly someone that we would want to invite over to a dinner party or to a cocktail party or something like that. Uh, and, and I would even venture to guess that if he 
being an empiricist, could see what we know today about race relations and about uh, racial realities, both in our own society and beyond. I don't have much doubt that he would alter his views considerably on, on, on the races. He was not averse to changing his views in response to evidence, unlike, I might say, some of the people uh, who seemed to be so ready to, uh, to, to attack him. So, so I think that that's that's part of the that's part of the the uh, what's going on. The other thing that I would say, though, is <clears throat> I think one reason why the Enlightenment is perennially under attack is because the idea of a global society, which is basically what we live in today, uh, which is held together not by a system of robust shared cultural values, a shared religion, a shared devotion to one ruler or anything like that, which is the way that most human societies have been held together in the past, but simply by the rules, the norms, the practices, the, the, the loose legal structure that we have around us to hold us in place and to make sure that we do our duties and fulfill our promises and our contracts and so forth, that's not intuitive. Hmm. We can see the extraordinary benefits that it brings, but it's not something that comes naturally or intuitively to people. This is something that Hayek, for example, worried about. He worried that people have uh, norms that are left over from our simpler past and that, it's the, that those norms were always going to be pressing in upon our experiences from the right and from the left uh, and making it uh, more difficult than we might like uh, to get people to live uh, together in peace in this sort of global, uh, global society that, uh, that, that, that we live in. The, um, the critique from the right, as we start to wrap up, the, the critique from the right, broadly speaking, of the Enlightenment continues to be a suspicion of, of reason as the god, let's say. Um, but in recent years, the critique of the Enlightenment from the left appears to have taken on some other attribute. Is reason still, though, why, perhaps why the modern race-obsessed left is suspicious of the Enlightenment? Is it... Is their attack on the Enlightenment also an attack on the idea of reason? Well, reason has certainly come under attack uh, for a long time, uh, even before our sort of current cultural uh, moment, much of the work in the after uh, post-war, post-World -world, uh, War II period was an attack upon Western reason. Western reason, after all, had led to the nuclear bomb. Western reason had led to the, uh, the destructive firepower and of, uh, of World War II. Uh, all the schemes, the utopian schemes, they were products of reason. They were so reason was the problem. Reason is, uh, reason is this kind of, is this kind of uh, cold... A mechanical sort of force that uh, is unanchored and unrooted in a real human uh, experience. So, uh, and of course, there there are people from the 18th century who can be read in that sort of way. I, the Scots that you admire, I think, are less subject to that sort of attack because 
they didn't ground their sense of right and wrong in reason. They grounded uh, them in uh, in intuitions and uh, 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 sort of um, uh, um, uh, uh, what m modern moral psychologists might call modules, basic modules of uh, of moral disposition and moral inclination. But nonetheless, yes, uh, 18th century reason seems to be uh, uh, seems to be a bugbear for for people on the left, and uh, and the destruction of various sources of community, whether uh, from uh, uh, from religion or morality or uh, traditional morality or, or or families or whatever other sources uh, from the right. Uh, these have been around for a long time. My expectation is that they will continue in different forms into the future. But my expectation also is that the kind of liberalism that the Enlightenment we've been discussing pioneered is likely to keep coming back. And the reason I say that is that every time there is a disaster, like World War II, for example, which was basically an attack upon liberalism from the left and the right in various and sundry mm. forms. Um, we, as a species, we increasingly retreat as to a safe harbor to a broadly liberal vision. Well, that I wanted to quote to you something that a, um, a left-wing uh, historian who... Uh, Eric Hobsbawm, who some people will know, not just a historian of the left or a historian of communism, but a, a, a communist historian, of course, who remained, who remained a member of the Communist Party right up to the end uh, and is not somebody I would ordinarily cite um, uh, approvingly. But uh, in 1994, he wrote in the New Left Review already a, a warning uh, to his fellow leftists, he said, of an interpretation of the Enlightenment as, quote, a conspiracy of dead white men in periwigs to provide the intellectual foundation for Western imperialism. He warned against this because he said to his readers, in spite of its downsides, the Enlightenment provides, quote, the only foundation for all the aspirations to build societies fit for all human beings to live in anywhere on this earth. And that was 1994. Um, Today, we hear historians of the left saying the Enlightenment is the problem. But there we are. 30 years ago, a communist historian like Hobsbawm even could still say what we've been given by the Enlightenment is the only basis we have for a society in which we can get on. Well, that's a rare moment of uh, concurrence between Eric Hobsbawm and myself, actually. <laughs> I absolutely endorse that comment 100% for sure. So we are uh, we are in some agreement on the Enlightenment. Uh, just as finally to wrap up, um, would we be where we are today in societies like America without these dead white males of the Enlightenment? I think the best way of answering that <clears throat> is to just look around at the various ways in which we use their ideas without even thinking about it, including those who might be critical of the Enlightenment. And I'll just mention one example, and we haven't mentioned him yet, but he was absolutely central also to the Enlightenment project, and that's Montesquieu. Mm. 
So Montesquieu's book, The Spirit of the Laws, was published in 1748. It was far and away the most widely cited book by the American founders, four times as much as they cited Locke, for example. And two of his key ideas are the idea of, um, uh, of the separation of powers and the need for checks and balances in government. Those ideas have simply passed into the common sense of mm. all modern people, so that even during the January the 6th hearings uh, about, the, uh, uh, about the storming of the Capitol in, on January the 6th, 2021, across the political spectrum, you hear people evoking the need to check the power of the executive by means of either the legislative or the judicial power. Uh, they, they, these have become part of the warp and wolf of our lives. It, was, it was, wasn't Montesquieu who invented the separation of powers, but it was Montesquieu who invented the idea that has passed into mm. our kind of cultural bloodstream, blacks and whites, we all, regardless of race, color, or creed, uh, will retreat to these ideas. Uh, as they are convenient, and they continue to be convenient in all kinds of ways every single day. On toleration, on separation of powers, on separation of church and state, the Enlightenment thinkers have seeped into our political culture like Shakespeare's language has come into English. It's, it's the tributaries into the culture which we currently inhabit. That is my view. Professor Henry Clark, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.